we have been, uh, or have started at least, Matt kicked us off last week in our, in our stewardship series, which we've entitled Entrusted, um, and, uh, which, is, which is a little bit unusual for us. It's a, it's a, a topical sermon series, uh, which is not the, not the norm, um, nor probably should it be, as Matt also mentioned. Um, topical sermons are, are useful at times, I think, to study something biblically like stewardship. But overall, our, our diet should be of, of God's word uh, being exposited uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. It's, it's how we get a, a full sense of what God is doing um, throughout all of Scripture and in our lives. But the goal, no matter you're, if you're looking at one passage or, or a dozen spread throughout the Bible, is to reflect the truth of Scripture. And so that's, that's my goal this morning, is that we would look faithfully throughout all of the Scriptures and see what the Lord has for us in terms of, of this idea of, of stewarding uh, what's been entrusted to us, specifically relating to serving God with the abilities that he's given us. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to go through several texts. We're going to be in Genesis, in Exodus, Deuteronomy. Uh, we're going to be in, uh, in, the, in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We'll be in the, in the Gospels. We'll be in First uh, and Second Corinthians. We'll be in Hebrews. We'll be in First in Peter. So we'll be all over the place. Um, so you're welcome to try and and keep up with all of the flipping that you would have to do. I am going to have the scriptures uh, in order in front of me, so I have an advantage over you. So uh, my advice this morning would be not to try and flip to each of the scriptures, but if you're a note taker, maybe just write down the reference. It might be helpful for you. I hope, I hope that, that what I share this morning is, is, uh, is useful to us. Um, I, I, I always end up thinking that as I, I go through texts and teach them that, that uh, I resonate with what John Piper said, that it's not immediately practical but eternally helpful. So that's what we're shooting for this morning. Um, but as, as we go through these things, just, just I hope this spurs you on to further study of what it means to be a steward in terms of your spiritual gifts. We're not going to do like a spiritual gifts assessment this morning, um, as fun as those are. Um, I'm sure if you've uh, been a believer for long or been a member of a, of a good Baptist church for long, you've probably taken at least a dozen spiritual gifts tests throughout your life. So, uh, so, so we're not missing anything there. Um, but this morning we are going to be diving into God's word deeply. So if you're taking notes, um, don't try and get every word. Let's just, uh, let's, just, let's just think through this together and see what God's Word has. And just, If you would um, pray with me before we dive in and uh, just ask the Lord to come and, and, and use me uh, in my inadequacy. God, we humble ourselves before you as your people who need your Word. God, we confess that we have gone our own way. At times we have insisted on our own will, but Lord, let us be united this morning united in will and in desire to understand what your word has for us, how it can shape us and change us and mold us. God, we, we just submit ourselves to your authority. I submit to your authority. And Lord, we pray that as your word is, is read and proclaimed and taught, that you would make much of yourself through it, God, that you would change your people to be into the image of Jesus. We ask you to do this through the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I said, we're, we've been studying stewardship. And uh, this idea of stewardship, it's, it's why we've actually entitled our series, Entrusted. I don't know if you guys have seen the, the slide, Entrusted. 
Uh, we've entitled it Entrusted because the idea of, of it's part of the definition of what stewardship is, is that God has entrusted his people, the church, uh, with a huge responsibility to, to live our whole lives in the most strategic way possible to bring him glory and praise. So stewardship being that God has entrusted us, his people, with huge responsibility to live our lives, our whole lives, in the most strategic way to bring him glory and praise. That's what we were born to do. That's what we were designed to do. And last week, Matt uh, just thought he'd do me a favor and go ahead and use the word talents a bunch uh, in a context that I wasn't going to use talents. So now we're just thinking about talents as money, so that's cool. I'll just, we'll just press on through that, and I'll just come up with my own words, so now there's no confusion. Uh, Matt talked about talents in terms of uh, the parable of the talents, which, which is money. But as we have studied, we're going to study stewardship. We're, we're looking at time, talents, and treasure. We're talking about talents this morning, but we're not talking about money. We are talking about gifts, our abilities that God has given us. But rather than, uh, I think talents, it, it kind of conjures up these ideas of, of, of just spiritual gifts, which is a little bit narrow for what I, I, I want us to, to focus on this morning. I want to I broaden it up a little bit, so I don't want to just talk about talents in terms of spiritual gifts. I want to talk about our talents and our God-given abilities in terms of serving, what it means to serve God's kingdom, what it means to take the individual ways that God has crafted each of us and then crafted us as a body, what he's done in that and how we can apply that as leverage for his kingdom in the world. So, so serving being the, the, the definition that I'll be working from here, serving or serving with our abilities, is applying God-given abilities to grow God's kingdom. Using the way that God has made us individually in our life for his glory. And through these, uh, I think we're going we're to see three things this morning. Um, we'll see that serving God in our abilities is, is three things, and I started them all with eyes, so that's helpful, right, alliteration. First thing that we're going to see, that serving God in our abilities and the way he's gifted us is, number one, it's intrinsic to the fabric of our identity as humans. It's intrinsic to the fabric of our identity as humans. And number two, that it's inescapable to our identity as Christ followers. It's inescapable to our identity as Christ followers. And number three, that it is inexcusable as sin for the Christian refusing to spend him or herself for God's kingdom. That serving God in our abilities is inexcusable as sin for the Christian refusing to spend him or herself for God's kingdom. First, we need to understand... What's serving God in our abilities, though? We need to understand this foundationally in our ability. We need to understand, understand what serving God in our abilities looks like and has looked like throughout history as t- taught to us by Scripture. And the best way that I've, I've found to do that, um, and, uh, and I've got I've, a, lot of this, uh, a lot of this came from a book whose the, the, the author's name escapes me, but it's called uh, Servanthood as Worship, um, maybe Paul Manley. I don't know. We can look that up. A lot of this comes from, from that book, which, which was helpful for me in formulating this. But the idea is uh, that throughout history, we can, we can categorize serving the Lord um, by the story of three temples. Okay, not like temples like on the side of your head, but temples like, like a temple. Okay, so the story of three temples, and I'll explain this as, as we go. So if that's a little bit blurry, we'll hopefully clarify it. But God's, the history of serving the Lord can be broken down into, into the three temples that have existed 
throughout history as a means of serving the Lord. So let's define what a temple is really quickly. It's, it's a place where God comes to dwell. Right? So think of the temple in the Old Testament. A place where God comes to dwell and man comes to serve God. That's what a temple is. It's a place where God comes to dwell. He comes to be on earth. This is his place that he's chosen. And it's where man comes to him to serve him. And there have been three of these throughout history. And we're going to study them as we begin, uh, as we see and, and study them. We're going, to, we're going to see that serving God and our abilities, uh, what it means for us today as we look at these. So, so the first of the three temples is actually not a temple at all. It's, it's the garden. So we go all the way back. So we're, we're going to start at the beginning and work our way forward. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, we read, that the Lord God took man, so, so God makes man, and he breathes life into him. He makes him good. He makes him in his image. The Lord God took man, and what did he do with him? He put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Genesis 2.15. So God creates us, humans, man, uniquely to do a few things, the three main ones being to bear his image, to obey his word, and to work. And I love that, that, that working is a part of our identity. Now, in, in, in the Reformed Church, in, in the Baptist Church, the word work can, can be and associated with, with, with salvation, can be kind of a touchy word, like, like what, do you, what do you mean here, Michael? Like, we've got we to work for our salvation? No. But work, foundationally, as our identity, even just as humans, not even as believers, is foundational to what we were made to do. We were made to work. Adam and Eve enjoyed with God in the garden, an uninhibited uh, obedience to God because there was no sin in the form of serving God, working for God according to the gifts that God gave each of them. So Eve, number one, she, uh, she's, she's made in, in, in God's image as she, is, as she is pulled from Adam. Eve is, is uh, in service to her husband as his helpmeet. That's her unique skill set. Her gifting is to help and serve her husband to come alongside him as a helpmate. Adam is uniquely gifted to tend God's good creation. And both of them are uniquely gifted to fellowship with the Lord and each gifted uniquely for the task of fulfilling, of, of serving, um, and fulfilling all of these things with joy. So man serving God, this is the big picture here is that man serving God with his abilities was the bedrock of what we were created to do. There's nothing more foundational than the idea that we as humans were created to serve the Lord. Working for God according to our abilities, what God has, has made us to be and the skills he's given us, working for God according to our abilities is not a result of the fall, but rather it's a blessing that comes from, from before it. This idea of work is not a, a result of the fall, but it's, it, it comes before the fall. Now work, just like anything else, was affected by the fall. So now we toil rather than tend, but the, but the, the principle is still there. See, in the garden there was... There was a time when there were no barriers between God and man, that we were created uh, in God's image, as it says in Genesis 1.26, and we had the intimacy, the privilege of the intimacy of being like God in nature, that God actually walked with Adam and Eve in the garden, the intimacy and the closeness and the awesomeness of standing with God in the garden. In the garden, there were, there were no barriers between God and man. We simply were and existed and did what we were created to do, serving the Lord, but that was interrupted 
by the fall and by sin. The sin enters the world through Adam and Eve's original sin, and it opens up this, this immense chasm that we cannot cross. Sin separates God from man. But fortunately, the story doesn't end there. Genesis 3.15 says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's speaking to, God speaking to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This being what we call the, the, the first gospel, the proto-evangelion. The first gospel, the first promise of hope. Genesis 3.15, the hope of salvation that God will one day create a way for man to be in fellowship with God again. So now we have to fast forward through thousands of years of Old Testament history. The first temple is the garden, the first place where God meets with man and man serves God. The second temple is the actual temple or the tabernacle in service under the law of Moses. See, in mercy, after the garden, God forestalls judgment on mankind for Original sin, the original sin of disobedience. God doesn't, chooses not to execute his first people that he's created in that moment. And he forestalls judgment. And instead, he chooses to make a people for himself. So it's from these original people, he's going to choose out a separate people and he's going to make them his own, Israel. And God's going to teach these people how to properly worship him in a fallen reflection of that fellowship that we had in the garden at one point. That God will meet with his people in the tabernacle and, and eventually a permanent temple. That's, that's where all this is going. So all we fast forward through, through uh, thousands of years and we get to the temple. And that's, that's what the Lord is doing. But the problem with, with temple worship, with, with the law of Moses, is that uh, the system, though it is perfect, it hinges on people doing everything perfectly. Which I don't know about your experience in, uh, in the world or with human nature, but that's not really our strong suit post-fall. Is doing everything perfectly. And so temple worship, unfortunately, was not exactly easy either. It was very particular. And it was so cumbersome, in fact, that there was a whole tribe of Israel that was devoted to getting it right. Imagine something so difficult that you have to have a whole subsection of your whole community just devoted to just getting this one thing right. Numbers 18.7. This is God's stewarding the, uh, the, the gift, he calls it gift, that should have been in quotes in the Bible, the gift of the priesthood to Aaron and the Levites. He says, you and your sons, you shall guard your priesthood for all that concerns the altar and that is within the veil, that is the, the holy of holies, and you shall serve. And I give the, you the priesthood as a gift, and any outsider who comes near shall be put to death. So high st- it's a high stakes game we're playing here. This is the Levitical law. It was intricate. The, the, the Mosaic law was intricate down to the hour and to the ounce in terms of what kind of sacrifice could be, be made when and by who. Listen to this from Leviticus 19, 5 through 8. This will be your Leviticus for the year. When you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. And it shall be eaten the, the same day you offer it or on the day after. And anything left over... Until the third day shall be burned up with fire. If it is eaten at all on the third day, it is tainted and it will not be accepted. And everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity because he has profaned what is holy to the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from his people. Okay, so 
Think about this. All that stands between you and execution is someone labeling the food wrong. Right? So, so the, here's the question. Did we cook this yesterday or two days ago? I can't remember. Boom. You're, like, you're done because someone couldn't remember when the bread was baked. A survey of Israel's success in, in keeping the law is disheartening at best. The biggest difference between worship in the first temple, the garden, and the second temple, the tabernacle, is separation, though. Separation is the big one. So we talked about the intimacy of the garden, that God and man dwelling together. But in the Old, the old Covenant, in the Old Testament, we see a separation between God and man, even between God and his chosen people, Israel. Hear this from Exodus 19. When God makes the covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai, he says this to Moses. He says, And you shall set limits for the people all around the mountain, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. What is the edge of a mountain? How, how do we define that? Or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch it. But he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man. He shall not live. To the separation that God is from the beginning of the covenant. And then we have, within the tabernacle itself, we fast forward to the, to the giving of the, of the laws surrounding the tabernacle, the place where God will dwell in, in, uh, in cloud amidst his people. The Holy of Holies is the innermost section of that. It's the place where the Ark of the Covenant would rest. It's where God's presence literally would come and would meet with Moses, and then later in the temple would come and would dwell in the temple. And they actually hung a very thick veil. In Exodus 26, we see the instructions for how the veil was supposed to be built. It's very intricate and detailed, but it's a thick veil that would separate the next part of the temple, of of the tabernacle or the temple, from the innermost part. So even within God's house, there's a separation between outside and inside. And there was only one occasion... Once per year, where one person would go into that innermost place, the high priest would go in one time a year to make a sacrifice for the sins of Israel. And that was people's interaction, personal interaction with the living God. Worship and service under the Mosaic law was isolated. God was separate from his people because of sin. God was, while he was present, was still not with his people. What we saw in the garden is is nothing in in the way it's reflected in the Mosaic law. There's There's a wall between God and man. Not only did God remain separated from his people, but his people were actually separated from the world, too. They were isolated. If we think about the 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 geographic separation of worship of Yahweh, that that God could only be worshiped. In Israel, that God could only be worshipped not just in Israel, but, but in Jerusalem, in the temple. And then there's the, the, the ethnic divide that only a people of a particular bloodline, ethnic Israel, could be a part of God's family. And then there's the cultural language separation that there would be no engagement with outside cultures, with the outside world, with outside, on religious or social matters, they were to be separated. They were to be their own community walled out from, walled with walls facing out that, that no one could come inside. The Lord says in Deuteronomy six thirteen, he says, it is the Lord your God, you shall fear him, you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. 
You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the, of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from all the face of the earth. The consequences were high for this isolation. For Israel, unlike Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall, serving God was, with their abilities, serving God with their, their God-given abilities was limited to a time and a place, an occasion. It was uncertain. It was nerve-wracking. You could, you could never... You would never have assurance of salvation. Uncertain and nerve-wracking were light terms here with potentially desperate consequences should you mess this up. And all of this was done in separation from God by multiple degrees. But the people of God, the people of Israel, never interacted with the Lord. There was never, uh, there was never any face time like there was in the garden. And so this paints a pretty hopeless picture, but the good news is... That Jesus, say, but God, Ephesians 2, Christ comes to change all of this. Did we go back to Genesis 3.15 that we read where it said, I will put enmity, Jesus says, I mean, the Lord says to, to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecy way back in the garden. And he's the one who ushers in the age of, of what is going to be our third temple. The temple that will be the church or the believer. The third place where God comes to dwell and man comes to serve him. There's a great illustration of this in, in the Gospels. The Lord does something as Christ dies on the cross to prove this point. There was a temple where, where, uh, where God dwelled inside of a physical boundary, like a stone building, right? The Lord's going to make a point in the Gospels. In Matthew 27, verses 45 through 51, they read like this. This is Christ on the cross. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, the man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge filled with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And here in verse 50, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. He died. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to to bottom, the earth shook and the rocks were split. This picture of the, of the rent and torn veil is a beautiful illustration that the Lord uses in the Gospels and in real life, as this actually happened, to show that because of what Christ has done, that separation that has always been present since the original sin, since the first sin of man, is now gone. That he's going to change that. The Lord is saying that he is, he's ripping open this veil of the temple, saying that there is now no more separation. I'm, I don't dwell within a stone building. So I'm going to build a people for myself, and I'm going to dwell within them. The Holy of Holies is ripped open, and the Lord releases himself onto the world. What Jesus has done on the cross is that he has purchased for his people, 
for those that would follow him, an unprecedented access to the Father. Unprecedented access to the Father. The writer of Hebrews phrases it this way, that Jesus has become the new high priest. So we talked about the high priest going into the Holy of Holies once a year to make atonement for the sins of the people. That sounds a lot like something that Jesus did. Let's read this in Hebrews 9, 11 through 14. Just follow along with me. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, into the holy of holies, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will it purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Amen. That is what Christ has accomplished on the cross. He has gone into the holy of holies once and for all. Under the law of Moses, the high priest, would, would, who was the head of, of the, the Levitical priesthood, a lifetime appointment given by, by uh, heredity, that, that this, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies. And he had the responsibility of going in once a year within the temple, within the inner court, all the way into the most inner place, the Holy of Holies, on the Day of Atonement, and he would sprinkle blood on the, offer, on the altar to, offer, uh, to, to cleanse the sins of Israel. And every year he would make the sacrifice, year after year. The blood of goats and bulls, though, it was not enough to remove the people's sin because our, sin, our sins are many and they are persistent. And so what we, what we read in Hebrews, we see that Christ has done the impossible work that man could not do, that God comes in the flesh. He dwells among us. He lives perfectly. He obeys every law and fulfills every law on our behalf and then willingly lays his own life down onto the altar. He sprinkles, the high, this high priest sprinkles his own blood on the innermost altar and he lays down his life on the altar for his people. And his sacrifice is more than sufficient. More than sufficient. He enters once and accomplishes what no one could have hoped for. In Hebrews 4, the author continues. He says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Friends, for those of us who would cling to Jesus, if we would cling to him in faith, he removes the guilt of sin, and he gives us the means by which we can approach the throne of God boldly in all things. And in particular, in serving him, implying what he has given us, our God-given abilities, to the glory of his kingdom. 
How does he do that? This is what Jesus does. When he enters into that temple, the metaphorical temple, for the sake of this argument, that one time, he, he abolishes the temple. It's no longer needed. Because what has he done? He has removed the need for sacrifices of, of the blood sacrifices of goats and bulls and grain offerings. It's no longer needed because there is no sacrifice that can add to the work that Christ has done. There is nothing that can be added to the perfection that Christ has accomplished on the cross. And so with this temple no longer needed, he creates a new temple, one of flesh, one of his people. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5. As you come to him, Jesus, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Do you hear that? That us, church, we are being built into this temple. The Lord is building himself a new temple, one believer at a time. Christ died to create this church, this temple, and to build his followers into that temple. A new temple that cannot be torn down or destroyed because it is in the hearts of God's people. Jesus creates a priesthood of all believers, everyone with the Holy Spirit, everyone who clings to Jesus as their one and only hope of salvation, can enter into the Holy of Holies now. We can be face to face with God because in Christ we have been made righteous by his sacrifice. There is no longer a separation. As a result of what Christ has done, there is no separation, and this is where it gets practical, between our daily life and the kingdom work of God. Where once there was a separation, where we could only serve God in one place, at one time, in one way. The Lord has erased all boundaries. He has erased uh, ethnic, geographic, and cultural barriers for the sake of his son. So when we look back to the definition of a temple, which, which I define as a place where God comes to dwell and man comes to serve him, and we apply this to the New Testament understanding of the indwelling spirit, we see that If you are a follower of Christ, when you wake up in the morning, you are the temple. You are the place where God comes to dwell and man comes to serve him. And you can see how blurry those lines get. How do I know when I'm serving the Lord? How do I know if I should be doing this for the Lord? Those questions are all erased. Because God has removed any boundaries, any sense of of, of us being unable to serve the Lord in what we do every day. That we are the place where God dwells and we serve him. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, we read this. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And what we can take from this is that if you are in Christ, you have been made new. You've been made into a new creature. You have been made alive in Christ. So there is nothing in your life or in your sphere of influence or in your sphere of responsibility that does not belong to Christ. Because your life is not your own. 
your life is forfeit. If you are in Christ, you have no hope outside of Christ. You have no life. So everything that you have is a God-given gift. And so that opens up all sorts of possibilities, all sorts of ways that we can think about how am I supposed to serve the Lord? I want to think about this, this phrase for just a minute. Bought for a price, so glorify God in your body. Believer, Christ has bought you access to the Father. Unprecedented, unhindered, undeniable, unfathomable, unbelievable access to walk and work and live with the God of the universe dwelling within you. And that's great. That's really good news. Because that empowers us to do what we could not do under the law. Without the Spirit living inside us, without the power of the Spirit walking with us and working our salvation out in us, then nothing we do can be to the glory of God. But now thanks to what Christ has done and the indwelling of the Spirit, and Christ purchased back, he bought us back, we can do all things to the glory of God. At the core of being a servant to God's kingdom is knowing that not just what Christ has bought for you. He's bought for you salvation. He's bought for you access to the Father. He has bought for you eternal life. He's bought those things for you and given them to you free of cost. But it's about knowing more than that. It's about knowing not just what Christ has bought for you, but that he has bought you. That if you are in Christ, you are his possession. So Paul says, so glorify God in your body. And as you serve, as we serve, as we think about what we are to do with this stewardship that we've been given of ourselves, of our time and our talents and our treasures, specifically our, our gifts and our abilities, we have to ask ourselves, we have to, we have to in serving him, demand less of others and, and ask more of ourselves, ask more from yourself. We, we have to realize that we cannot serve ourselves and the Lord, that we are not our own, that we don't have time. That we don't have talents, we don't have treasures, we don't have abilities, we have nothing. But what we do have is given by God for a purpose, for his kingdom. So we have to let go of these things as if they are our own. If we're going to apply this this whole concept of stewarding our God-given abilities for God's kingdom, then we must see that we don't own a single bit of what we have. Nothing, nothing, not ourselves, nothing. It's all God's, he paid for it. He's given us access to him. He's given us the power of the Holy Spirit living inside us. He's made us his temple. So there's no separation between the Christian life and the kingdom of God. And what good news that we don't have to to travel to some distant land, to a stone temple, and perform rituals to worship the living God, to meet him. We can meet with him at our dining room table over coffee through his word, and through prayer. And we can serve him right where we are. What glory it is that we don't have to remove ourselves from the world, that we don't have to isolate ourselves away and hide from the world. The Lord has put himself in us so that we, his people, can steward this life, everything that we've been given, and we can be his emissaries to a broken world. We can be a mechanic, a farmer, a a teacher, a welder, a mom, all to the glory of Christ's kingdom, all for the sake of God's kingdom. 
And that's really our, our simple application for today. It's not figuring out what our specific spiritual gift is. It's not figuring out specifically where it is that I need to be serving. It's that I must be devoting myself and my time and my abilities to God's kingdom. Because nothing else will stand on that day. On the day when the kingdom comes, the only thing that will stand is what's done for Christ. And so I just have a series of questions that I I, I want to ask us. Our, Our application is what are you doing to leverage your life for God's kingdom? What are you doing to leverage your life for God's kingdom? That's a big question. I'm not going to give you the answer to it because I don't know it, but you do. What are you doing to leverage your life for God's kingdom? If you can't think of anything, let's talk. How are you taking the skills and desires God has given you and plying them for God's glory? God has given you skills and desires. He's given you those things, those abilities. He's given you your place of work and your family. He's given you the ability to play music, to uh, write a really good email, to, uh, to travel freely uh, overseas. He's given you all those things so that you might do them unto his glory, to serve him. He's uniquely gifted you to strategically expand his kingdom. Final question, how are you laying, down, laying yourself down for others in the name of Jesus? How are you serving others in the name of Jesus? I encourage you to make a list of these things. If it's a short list, if it's a long list, it doesn't matter. If you're not sure where to start with any of these things, if you're, if you're sitting here wondering, what do I, what do, I do? What do I do? How do, how do I ply my trade? How do, I, how do I do what God has given me for his glory? Well, the answer isn't to wait to start serving the Lord, to start, to start giving of yourself, to start giving of your time, talents, and treasures, your abilities, until you figure that out. Just start by serving the body right here, just very practically. If you're still figuring out your skill set, what it is that the Lord wants from you, I, had a, I was not the most athletic person uh, in high school, but I did play a lot of sports. And um, I, I finally realized that I wasn't the most athletic. I just, uh, I, I just kind of have a little bit of a work ethic, right? Because I realized this because I heard a coach say this to me one time or, or um, about a group of us that kind of fell into that category, not athletic, but hardworking. <laughs> he said, you know, you might not be the most talented person on the team, but even the water boy can hustle. I love that. Because maybe we don't know what our skill set is, right? Maybe we don't know what specifically what the Lord is calling us or asking us to do right now, right? Maybe we're in kind of a limbo. Maybe you're in, I sympathize with my wife, you're in, you're in, the, you're in the mom phase. You're like in the parent phase, like you're in a hardcore mom mode where you just have kids and babies all the time. And I think about her, and I think that, that's it. You're just in the hustle right now. Like, like you, may not, you may not be applying a specific skill, but you're hustling, right, for the kingdom. So if you're not serving the church, if, if, you're not, if you're not serving the body in a specific way, if you're not volunteered for something specifically, start there. That's a first step. It's a very practical first step that we can do is getting plugged into something that the Lord is already doing, right? Something that the Lord is doing through the group of us here and plug into that. Jump in head first and spend yourself for God's kingdom. The Lord has gifted you specifically to serve him, to honor him, to walk with him. 
And when we evaluate our time and talents and treasure, all three of these things that we're going to talk about, that we must recognize that none of these resources, none of these resources that we can be so selfish with, that we protect so viciously, are even ours, that they are the Father's and they have been stewarded to us. Your very being has been stewarded to you. So there is nothing that is off limits for the Lord. It is all up for grabs, and we have to be willing to let go of it and give it to the Lord for the sake of his kingdom. Let's pray together.